This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And I write the uh, legal blog watch for Law.com and also my own blogs, uh, uh, Law Sites and Media Law. Well, Craig, uh, today we're going to talk some more about Elliot Spitzer. Uh, Elliot Spitzer, of course, uh, has been uh, referred to as the Sheriff of Wall Street, uh, even Mr. Clean, but uh, uh, unfortunately for him, he now has a new nickname, and that's, of course, client number nine. Well, as New York's Attorney General, Spitzer was known for taking down Wall Street giants, breaking up prostitution rings, and locking up perpetrators on various charges, such as money money laundering and, surprisingly enough, prostitution. And while governor, he uh, proposed a bill that would legalize same-sex marriage in New York, and he issued an executive order allowing illegal aliens to be issued driver's licenses, uh, both of which attracted some controversy. He's considered a hero to many in the legal community for single-handedly cleaning up the evil of big business and fighting off the little guy. He's uh, now the former governor of New York, and he got tangled up in a prostitution ring under investigation by the federal government that led him last week to resign from office. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, the, the legal implications of all this uh, for Elliot Spitzer and the legal community's response to this scandal. Uh, and uh, let's get to our guests. Our first guest today is a returning guest, David Frank from Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. David joined the publication in June of 2005. As a senior news reporter, he brings an intimate knowledge of the trial courts, which he honed as a career prosecutor prior to joining Lawyers Weekly. Most recently, David worked as an assistant district attorney in the gang unit in Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. Welcome back to the show, David. Well, Craig, Bob, thank you very much for having me. And joining us next today is Attorney Harvey Silverglate, a uh, nationally, if not internationally, known criminal defense and civil liberties lawyer. Attorney Silverglate is of counsel to the Boston law firm of Good and Cormier, the uh, successor to the firm uh, he was with for many years, Silverglate and Good. Uh, He is a uh, frequent uh, columnist, uh, author, blogger, uh, and he just had an op-ed piece uh, for the Boston Globe this weekend uh, about Elliot Spitzer, p- potential prosecution of Elliot Spitzer entitled Spitzer's Legal Minefield. Uh, he uh, is also author of a forthcoming book uh, tentatively titled Three Felonies a Day, which deals with prosecutions under vague statutes. Welcome to the show, Harvey Silverglate. My pleasure to be here. And Bob, our next guest is Dan Slater, the lead writer for the well-written Wall Street Journal's law blog, which focuses on law and business and the business of law. Dan joined the Wall Street Journal from The Deal magazine, and before he became a journalist, he worked as a litigator at a New York law firm. Welcome to the show, Dan Slater. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Dan Slater, I wonder if I could just start with you. You've, you've sure. obviously been following, uh, the events of the past week. And as you were, as you were just saying before we went on to the, mm-hmm. went on mic here, uh, it's almost old news at this point. But, but give us a, a recap of, of, uh, of the legal issues here that, that, that Spitzer might be facing. Sure. Well, when the news first broke on the New York Times website, I think it was Monday afternoon around two, 
maybe a little bit after. Um, the first things that were thrown out there were violations of the uh, Mann Act, um, which is about a 100-year-old um, act that was originally, I believe, intended to prevent taking prostitutes across state lines. Um, the other uh, possible violation would be uh, assisting uh, the laundering of money, although many think that's sort of unlikely because... You know, the mere fact that he paid for the services, you know, doesn't mean that you know, he was aware that, that the money would ultimately, you know, be used for that. Um, those are the things that, you know, were out there at, uh, at you know, the, uh, the uh, start. Um, later on in the week, the New York Times reported um, there was an investigation uh, that began, I believe, on Thursday... Um, into whether or not Spitzer may have used uh, funds from the um, 2006 campaign uh, to finance the um, the uh, visits in places like D.C., possibly another prostitution visit down in Florida as well. Uh, so that those are the things that are out there right now. And Harvey, you uh, you wrote uh, over the weekend in in, in the Boston Globe. Uh, uh, you're, you're critical, I, I guess, as I read it, of the, of the prospect of, of uh, there being a, a potential federal prosecution of Spitzer on what normally would be considered a, a kind of a state or local uh, uh, incident at best. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, unless it turns out that there was some corruption involved involving, for example, use of campaign funds to pay for a prostitute, I think that there's no inherent federal interest in this case at all. It should be left up to the District of Columbia to decide whether to prosecute Spitzer for a misdemeanor violation of the D.C. prostitution ordinance. Instead, as the old saying goes, they're looking to make a federal case. And this is not unusual. This is what my forthcoming book, Three Felonies a Day, is about, um, Mostly, it's about the use of extremely vague federal statutes to prosecute totally innocent people. In this case, Spitzer is not totally innocent. There is a misdemeanor prostitution violation from D.C. Uh, involved. But with respect to federal crimes, he seems to me to be innocent. But I predict that they are going to tease some federal uh, felony. And in fact, I think I could probably name at least half a dozen federal statutes, uh, felony statutes that they could uh, use as a hook um, to hang Spitzer on. And there's something wrong with a legal system that is such a bunch of silly putty that almost anybody... Uh, innocent or, you know, a sort of a minor misdemeanant can be uh, deemed a felon and not only prosecuted but convicted. But this is where we're at. And I mean, if for what it's worth, I think under the Mann Act, which in, in, in looking at the evidence that we believe exists in this case, that appears to be the strongest case in terms of evidence against Elliot Spitzer. And as Dan alluded to, if you look at the how old that law is and you look at what the real intent behind that law was when it was created. The idea behind the Mann Act was to punish people who bring prostitutes across state lines against their will. It, right. has, it has been used in cases where um, a person did not cross state lines against their will, and it's been uh, upheld on appeal. But at, at the end of the day, you really do have to look at the language of the statute and figure out if it's the right thing. I think, that, uh, I think that's the, the, the key question here. 
But I can tell you that there are other potential felonies here that they could manage. Um, there's no question in my mind that they could ha- there's a felony prosecution if they want it, because it's so easy to bring fe- federal felony prosecutions. For example, you know that there's no question that the facilities of interstate commerce and communications were used here. Um, there was the, the train ride to Washington. There were the various telephone calls arranging the assignation. And you can figure out a wire fraud. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that there are going to be a, a couple of wire frauds here. They may not be the lead counts. The lead count will be something more headline-worthy. But you'll have several wire fraud and mail fraud accounts here because, um, you know, the federal criminal code criminalizes means, whereas the ends, what it is that you actually did that was wrong, they're very vague. Fraud. We're not even talking common law fraud. We're talking some federalized fraud that has no definition. And Harvey, I agree that on its face, you can make a, a probable cause finding on a variety of charges, but looking at it, I think it's important to understand that the feds do not tend to move fast. They're going to take their time. I don't think at this point there's any particular rush uh, on the part of the Department of Justice. I I think if Spitzer had hung on and continued to uh, remain as governor, it could have created different issues. But you have to believe that there was some uh, negotiating or some behind-the-scenes discussions on how best to proceed in terms of Elliot Spitzer protecting his legal interests. Well, well, that was the conjecture the first couple of days, that, that he was uh, possibly trying to negotiate a deal uh, before resigning as governor, and that apparently didn't happen. Uh, do you think, uh, uh, do, we, do we have any knowledge, do you have any basis to believe, Dan, David, Harvey, that, that there's some negotiations continuing to happen here? And, and really, what's, what is the Fed's continuing interest in this at this point? Why, why do they care at this point? Well, we haven't heard anything about that yet. I mean, I know after he made his speech on Wednesday resigning, the feds released a statement, I think it was right afterwards, that said that they, you know, did not have a deal yet. Um, So I don't know what they would be negotiating at this point. I mean, he's taken about the biggest hit that he can take now with the resignation. I mean, I think anything, you know, after this is going to seem like sort of small potatoes. Uh, unless they can get him on a felony charge, and then he's going to lose his law license in New York State. Hey, but I think the question is, uh, certainly they can do that, but what's the point? And, you know, I understand that there were public statements from the Department of Justice that there had not been any negotiations, but that doesn't mean that that's um, necessarily accurate. And I would assume, and I'll defer to, uh, to Harvey and, and the rest of the panel here, if I was representing Elliot Spitzer, and we know he obviously had uh, a legal team, or has a legal team in place, how do you not make a phone call? How do you not initiate some form of dialogue? Whether you want to call it negotiations or a conversation, it, in my opinion, would defy logic that there would not be some dialogue between a person in Spitzer's situation and, uh, and the federal government. Well, I believe that there was a dialogue. There's certainly no question that his lawyers, as soon as they were retained, called up the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, I actually am I'm probably the one on this uh, conversation most skeptical of anything said by the Department of Justice. Even I am willing to believe that there was no 
formal agreement or understanding between Spitzer's counsel and the U.S. Attorney's Office that he would resign as governor. But I suspect that his lawyers, experienced white-collar lawyers who had been uh, in the Department of Justice previously, they understood that if Spitzer voluntarily left the governorship, he, would, he could probably expect more lenient treatment from the uh, DOJ, and that that's why it was done. In, in, in the effort by his lawyers to talk the government out of a serious felony prosecution, they at least wanted to be able to argue he's already been punished significantly by voluntarily withdrawing from office. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the original thinking was that he would try to use the resignation as some kind of a bargaining chip to get a better deal. And when that never happened, you know, I think the thinking sort of, you know, shifted into, okay, well, we'll have him do the resignation and then we'll see if they, you know, want to go anywhere from that. Yes, you know, the, uh, the, the, it's, there's a very controversial notion that um, sometimes the department does pressure public officials into resigning. Um, but their ability to do so, to insist on it, is quite limited. And uh, I remember way back um, when uh, Jimmy Hoffa um, was uh, convicted um, of a felony, and at the time he was uh, president of the Teamsters Union, and there was a provision in his plea agreement, or in his sentence, I don't recall which, uh, in which he agreed not to run for a certain number of years, for the presidency of the Teamsters Union, at the time of his mysterious and still unsolved death, uh, he was in court litigating the constitutionality of that provision of his sentence. And even today, it's very controversial when the government insists on um, such a provision. Here in Massachusetts, more recently, the former Speaker of the Massachusetts House, Tom Finneran, uh, pleaded guilty in a perjury of uh, case I consider to be a completely trumped up uh, charge, which I've written about, and it's in my forthcoming book. But Finnerin, um, uh agreed as part of a plea bargain to avoid prison. He agreed not to run for public office in Massachusetts for five years. And the judge sentencing him said right on the record, I cannot insist on this. Uh, but it's simply a gentleman's agreement between Finneran and the U.S. Attorney's Office. I assume Finneran is a man of his word. He'll stick to it, but I'm not making it part of his sentence. He also happens to have a uh, lucrative radio career right now as well, so he, he uh, you know, things have worked out well financially. But I, just to go back to a point that was made a moment ago, I agree there's a big difference between having a formal agreement to resign with the understanding that perhaps you will not be federally prosecuted, and I'm not suggesting that that necessarily happened here, although, as Harvey said, and I think I'm on board with him there, just because there was a public statement that said that that's what took place, I'm not necessarily convinced of that, but well, I think at the, at the end of the day, agreement. I mean, it, right, it, it's hard to look at the strategy that Elliot Spitzer and his team put together in the, the hours and days after this uh, scandal broke and think that it was anything but a sound legal decision. I think clearly Spitzer knows that he couldn't survive this politically, and the decision at that point was to perhaps save a legal career. And let's understand that Elliot Spitzer went into this as anything but an ordinary litigant. This is, as we all have said, the former Attorney General of New York, a person who was, uh, for, for several reasons, known as, the, uh, you know, as, as Mr. Clean, as Mr. Tough on Crime. And I, I think 
you got to. I, I think it's. I, I cannot envision a situation where um, Spitzer came to this decision for any reason other than the fact that he wanted to avoid uh, federal charges. Well, Dan, is this something that has arisen because of a media frenzy, or is this something that's a legitimate prosecution? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that you know, obviously, if the goal is to get him to resign, you know, the media circus was sort of essential in that. But I mean, I don't know. Any you know, any time you throw out allegations like this, the media is going to have a field day, and so I don't think there was any way around that. I mean, I think. Uh, that probably would have happened, you know, in any event. Well, I mean, the government was initially, the federal government was initially investigating, uh, you know, what it what it considered to be suspicious financial uh, transactions, uh, money movement. Now that Spitzer I mean, they, has, right. I'm no, sorry, sorry. I mean, I was just going to say that, you know, there were there were also, you know, nine other clients named in the complaint, and none of them yet have been fleshed out. Right. Um, Right. There was, you know, there was apparently, you know, a leak to the Times or something that, you know, Spitzer was client number nine. Um, now, now that this has has been leaked, uh, well, you know, in, in, I guess the Times had reason to suspect it and was able to obtain this information. But Spitzer's interest, probably his greatest interest, I mean, other than avoiding jail, is is retaining his law license because that's how he is going to be able to continue to make a living, at least in part, probably. Uh, but now, now that he's no longer governor, it seems it seems that the federal government just would have no interest here. I, I, am, I, am I missing something? I, I can't I can't see why the federal government would want to move forward with this. I, I agree. I don't see that, at this point what the what the uh, federal interest is in in prosecuting Elliot Spitzer for, as what Harvey referred to at the beginning of our of the podcast, for basically a misdemeanor prostitution offense. I mean, could you make a federal case out of it? Probably, but should you? I would suggest you shouldn't. I'd I'd be interested to know how many other quote unquote Johns get prosecuted in federal court for uh, facts similar to the ones that we think happened here. I would ask the question a little differently because I think the answer to that is uh, a few, if any. But I think that the operative question is how many governors and former governors who are caught some peccadillo are prosecuted once the feds find out about it and i think the answer is quite a few and uh... because i think the federal government has taken it upon itself to be sort of you know the sheriff monitoring state local and federal politicians whether that's a proper role for the department of justice is subject to another debate we could have i think it is not but nonetheless, realistically, it's because not because he was a John, but because he was a, a sitting governor that there's all this interest. Assuming that he gets prosecuted out of this, what are his likely defenses? Well, I think uh, perhaps Harvey could speak to it because I, I think it's a, he'd be in a difficult uh, position. He, as we all saw, stood in front of the microphones, gave a vague apology, but it appears that with federal wiretaps, with his voice allegedly on a uh, on phone calls, his bank records. Uh, it looks like a pretty good case for for a prosecutor. If I was walking into court with that as my evidence, I'd feel pretty confident. How would you plea it out? Yeah, I mean, under the federal sentencing guidelines, I don't see under these facts how um, a, a sentence would include anything involving incarceration. And if that's the case, what's the point? Why would we drag somebody like Elliot Spitzer into federal court if, at the end of the day, we don't even think it's a jail case? I don't know that anyone is necessarily. Uh, putting their, their fist on the desk, demanding that Elliot Spitzer go to jail for, for what may or may not have happened here. But uh, if the answer is no, I don't, I don't see how you could justify it. Well, 
First of all, I don't think that the feds don't always prosecute only where they think that there's a jail sentence that they can get. There are various other reasons they may prosecute. But a lot depends, it seems to me, on the issue of whether they find that there's any intermingling of either public or campaign funds here. And the problem is that that's, that's alarmingly easy to find. Let me, for example, throw out this, um, this possible uh, scenario. Um, I see uh, there were reports, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, it might have been the New York Times, um, in which some of the feds were speculating that perhaps um, some of his trips to Washington were unnecessary and that they were really phony trips uh, for phony reasons in order to have give him an excuse to get away from his wife and to go to Washington for mm-hmm. these assignations. Now, if you have a situation, and it's perfectly plausible this could happen, uh, given how the Department of Justice has enlarged its own power over American public life, uh, it's quite possible that you'll have federal prosecutors sitting down and looking at his various trips and saying, was this necessary? Was this necessary? Was this just an excuse to travel? And a lot of his trips, which were doubtless paid for by, by campaign funds or by public funds, if the feds decide this trip was really just an excuse for him to go to Washington for an assignation, they could prosecute him for that. And that would be a more serious Felony, and I, I agree with Harvey that it, that would certainly be a more serious felony, and it would be a different ball game. But I disagree with what you said a, a, a moment ago. I don't think it's as easy to follow the money as it is to put together uh, a prosecution under the Mann Act. I think when you're talking about bank records and following a, a, a governor and, and following the cash, I think that that is intricate, and I think that um, involves different resources that the government needs to put in play before they can feel confident beyond a reasonable doubt that they could put a case like that together. Because my experience with the federal government, and I'll defer to others if they have a different take, the feds don't indict cases that they think are, are weak. If I, I, my, my feeling, and from what I've seen, and um, you know, I obviously know enough federal prosecutors, I, I don't see uh, federal prosecutions being put together where there's not a lot of evidence. And I, I, I don't think it's as easy to follow the cash as it is to put together a Man Act indictment. Well, we need to take a short break here. We're going to come back shortly. We'll return more from our guests and what the future holds for Elliot Spitzer. We'll be right back. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayItPleaseTheCourt.com, Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. 
We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. We're talking to David Frank from Massachusetts Lawyer Weekly, attorney Harvey Silverclate, criminal defense and civil liberties lawyer, and Dan Slater, lead writer for the Wall Street Journal's Law blog. Well, gentlemen, let's assume that uh, Elliot gets uh, prosecuted. Let's assume that he doesn't successfully defend himself. What's he looking at for a sentence? Uh, well, you know, the first thing that he's got to think about is that he's going to lose his law license. If it's a felony, I believe under New York state law, he loses it automatically. But of course, you know, if he's going to jail, then he's going to have bigger worries. But uh, that would certainly be, you know, the main thing, or that would certainly be one thing that he'd have to think about. And I don't think, by the way, it's that he needs to practice law for a living. He's independently wealthy from his father. Um, but but sure, but I mean, he's only, the guy's only 49 years old. He's right, going to want to do something with the next 15 or 20 years of his life. Yes. You know, regardless of the fact that he's got, I think, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of a half a billion dollars. I mean, this is a guy that is highly, you know, driven, and he's going to want to, he's going to want to, you know, spend his time. Probably yeah, but we all know office. that a half a billion dollars doesn't go as far today as it did uh, five or six years ago. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we, we could we could conjecture over what the future holds for him, but uh, but uh, you know, you would imagine his law license was is important to him. He may never practice law again. He may consult with a law firm. I, I could even see him trying to do some lobbying work. I mean, the models for this is that you have. Uh, I think Pataki went to Chadbourne and Park about a year ago. Um, it was announced today that Mayor Giuliani is returning to his firm. Um, now they're about 15 years older, though, than Spitzer. So I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you take from that, but I think there's a chance that he would want to go to, you know, a firm and practice. Yeah. Well, he's, he's probably not going to follow a New Jersey Governor McGreevy into the seminary uh, doing religious studies, but. And I doubt he'll I get a job case, on Wall going Street. To the synagogue, then. Well, beyond going to rehab at this point, what does Elliot Spitzer do to to uh, rehabilitate himself and rebuild his reputation? Is it possible, given given what, where he is? I think so. I mean, I think that America is is very accepting of people who apologize, and I think Spitzer is certainly on the way towards doing that. It's it's not going to be an easy transition, but I I could certainly see Elliot Spitzer um, surviving this in terms of being able to. Have, earn a living and have a uh, a somewhat normal uh, professional life. I think he's probably going to have to spend a couple of years doing some kind of pro bono public service work. Well, that sounds good. And and what about that ego? How's how's he going to deal with that? You know, I think <laughs> that people are going to probably forget about this. I, I, you know, I think there's the concept that will start to gain in uh, in uh, popularity that that you know this is something that was a matter that should have stayed between you know him and his wife and his family, and he took the hit, um, and and so now it's time you know to uh, to uh, to go on. And, well, you know, I, I wonder, I, Harvey, you you in your column on uh, over the weekend talked about. I mean, you referred refer to Spitzer as arrogant, but you in some ways almost portray him as as the victim in the sense of, of government overreaching here or, or gov- the government's ability to kind of use the law for its own purposes. What's the, the bigger uh, answer to this? I mean, how is that to be prevented in other cases? Uh, how is the government to be curtailed in using the law in this way? Well, uh, first of all, there's no... Uh, 
I, I do think that he was very arrogant, uh, very overreaching when he was attorney general. In a way, I thought he was much less dangerous as governor because he had to deal with a legislature that didn't let him do much. But as the attorney general, he was quite dangerous in my view and quite reckless. Um, nonetheless, I am not in favor of federal prosecution of him because I, I deem it an abuse of federal law and of the federal prosecutorial function. So um, I, you know, I, I have uh, mixed views about this, this whole thing, but my primary view is that this is not a good trend to have the federal law cover so much that it was not initially intended uh, to cover, and by no reasonable view of a state and federal system should cover. We are just about at the end of our time, unfortunately, and I, I know that everybody's on a tight schedule today, so we want to give each of you an opportunity to uh, give us your final thoughts before you uh, have to take our leave and also to tell our listeners where they can find out more about you or get in touch with you. Uh, so uh, let's start with David Frank. Your final thoughts on this topic, and where can our listeners find out more about you? Sure. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, I enjoyed the, the, the discussion. Uh, listeners can... Uh, if, if they're looking to see what uh, is happening on the pages of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly, they can go to our website, which is www.masslawyersweekly.com. We actually are about to launch a uh, entirely new, uh, very much user-friendly website. So I encourage uh, all the listeners out there to uh, to, to give it a uh, to give it a uh, inspection. I think you will uh, find it informative. You'll even find some of the words of Mr. Uh, Silverglade on there, as he has uh, written for us. Um, I would also, just in, in, on the Spitzer topic, very quickly say that before he stepped down, it was my feeling that he would not be indicted. My feeling for what it's worth hasn't changed. I think the punishment for, uh, for Spitzer was a political punishment. I don't see uh, an indictment. There's certainly probable cause if the government saw fit to do so, but I think based on all the circumstances here, um, I, I, I do not see a federal indictment. This is now recorded. If I'm wrong, please do not email me. And, uh, you know, poke fun. David, thank you. Harvey Silverglade, your final thoughts. I believe that Spitzer will be indicted. It's possible that they will have uh, some kind of a, uh, there will be a plea arrangement. Um, so he will not go to trial, but I believe, and he will not go to prison, but I believe he will be indicted and will uh, plead guilty to something. Um, and uh, my, the reasons are set out in, uh, will be set out in my view of the federal criminal justice system in my forthcoming book, uh, probably toward the end of this year, three felonies a day. Anybody wanting to see anything I've written about related issues can go to my website, www.harveysilverglade.com, where there's also contact information. So you can send me email, but don't send threatening email. It's a violation of the mail fraud and wire fraud statutes. And uh, Dan Slater, your final thoughts on this topic. Uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, well, we haven't been writing about uh, Spitzer much the last few days. That's mostly because it's been overshadowed by the, the, uh, the Bear Stearns event and that whole uh, fire sale on Sunday. But we will certainly be returning to the story once the feds regain uh, their interest. You can uh, uh, link to the blog through www.wsj.com. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. Well, that about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. Bob? 
And uh, special thanks to all of our guests for being with us today and, and their time. And remember uh, that you can also find our programs on iTunes in the podcast library there. Well, next week we're going to be talking about the legal issues behind the defamation suit filed against the author of the widely read patent troll tracker blog and his employer, Cisco. Well, I look forward to talking to you next week, Craig, and thanks again to all of our guests. Thank you. Wonderful. See you next week, Bob. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.